Or we have to do something that syncs us all up. So just let's all count to five on the count of one. One. One, two, two three, 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 four, four five. 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 That's good enough. That was terrible. <laughs> And welcome to this episode of Medlib's Miscellany. I'm Tracy Shields, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Carrie Price, but we also have a guest, Katie Loebner. Katie Loebner is here to chat with us about systematic reviews and other search fun. So welcome, Katie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Katie, you and I worked together for quite some time, didn't we? We did, and then you left me. <laughs> I know, and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we worked together for a good eight and a half years, I think. Yeah. And in that time, I would say we probably did a lot of systematic reviews. Is that true? Very true. I think that's the bulk of what, what we do uh, where I work. Yeah. And are you still doing so many systematic reviews? I am. I currently, um, I have uh, three on my plate at the moment, which is a bit of a light load for me. We are finally fully staffed, so we're spreading out the love amongst everybody. If I remember correctly, the model is you work with different clinical divisions or departments, and then you liaise with them and take their systematic review requests and other reference requests. Is that right? Yeah, so we have, uh, we're, we're pretty well staffed for, for a medical library um, at an academic institution. Um, there are a lot of us, and we have divided up our patrons by departments according to an informationist's background or their interests um, or what just kind of goes together well. Um, and then we work with our patrons in that department. So while systematic reviews are a lot of what we do, we do generally have to know a little bit about everything because we're helping with everything. We don't, for example, have a citation management informationist or an instruction informationist. We all do a little bit of everything within those departments. Right. And how long have you been a medical librarian for? Um, in August, I will have been a medical librarian for 13 years. Wow, that's phenomenal. So how did you end up getting into medical library land? So I um, was always very interested in the sciences as a kid. Um, so I went to college for biology. And while I was there, I also got a, um, a bachelor's in environmental science and then minored in chemistry because my advisor said, hey, these all overlap. You can totally do them all. So I did them all. Um, and I considered going on to grad school, but I never... It, it seemed to me at the time that you had to really focus down into one part of science or, or one, you know, one virus or, or one disease or one, you know, something, one animal. Um, and nothing ever interested me enough to focus that much. And also, I, to be fair, completely hated physics and organic chemistry and was told that there was a lot of that. Um, <laughs> 
So I got a job um, in a lab, an, a research and development lab in a manufacturing plant for several years. Well, maybe three or so. And once I sort of mastered all of that work, I wouldn't say it was simple work, but it got boring. Um, and I was never, ever going to be paid enough money to be able to, you know, say, rent a one-bedroom apartment in the middle of Midwestern America. So I kind of needed to do something else with my life. And then I read about librarianship and uh, discovered that if you uh, get a master's degree in librarianship, your opportunities for interesting research um, expanded rather than contracted. So then, yeah, I was I was hooked. Um, I had also always loved reading, although not a requirement. So when I went to library school, I very seriously considered um, public librarianship as well. But I think that I ended up uh, in the right place for me in the medical world. Um, so yeah, so I got the degree and then I started looking for jobs. And um, as you probably know, an, a background in science is, is less common in librarianship. Um, so the then director of the medical library um, sought me out at ALA Midwinter, where I had attended, um, and we did a little mini interview, and then I, I went on to do the full the full interview and ended up getting offered the job. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and now you make the big bucks in, in medical library land, right? Huge. Massive. Well, I mean, I can afford my own home, so. <laughs> it is an improvement. Yeah. Yeah. I relate a little too well to um, hating the physics and organic chemistry part. <laughs> at hindsight being what it is, I think um, neither of my instructors were particularly good at teaching um, mm-hmm. in those. Like, for I loved my analytical chemistry class, um, loved it. Um, and then, yeah, organic chemistry and physics were, were a huge mess. And I think both of those instructors were not particularly good. So maybe I would like it if I tried it again, but I don't have to. Well, this wasn't in our plan to talk about, but hearing you say all that made me realize that there was something I wanted to bring up, which was that you were one of my mentors when I started. Aw, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have a background in science like both of you do, and I needed help. And Katie was always ready to answer a question Tell me about a database. Uh, show me how to search, and that's so valuable. Yeah, I um I also had some really great mentors when I started. Um, I I had taken a searching class in library school um, that I think actually was very very helpful for this position, um, but obviously like I didn't have a ton of experience with it. Um, so having somebody there that I could always bounce questions off of or, you know, help me figure out something that was a little bit tricky um, was always great. So I, I try to do the same thing for for newer librarians or, or experienced librarians. Um, just the other day, I sent Carrie a search that was giving me trouble because I just needed another set of eyes on it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really, really valuable, valuable way we can help each other out. Yeah, for sure. So did you want to get into systematic reviews or did you just kind of find yourself doing systematic reviews? Yeah, um, I don't know that I knew what they were before I got into medical librarianship. Um, So I can't say that that was a goal. But the 
the li- the library director uh, when I started was very interested in in changing our model from from a more traditional medical library where people come to the library um, to get help or resources and and to make it more of a of a library that's available where our patrons are. Um, whether that's in one of the schools or in the hospital. And as a part of that, she was also interested in making, expanding our services to be more involved in the research process. Uh, we're also involved in you know, education and to a much lesser extent patient care, but, but she really wanted us to be a resource for the entire institution. So a big part of that became systematic reviews. And um, so I think it was just one of the things that I learned as a part of my job. I didn't have, yeah, I didn't have any specific experience with that, but I knew, you know, science, I had the science background and um, which, which honestly, like, I, I feel like that just gives me like a, a, a couple months lead, lead on learning all of the science <laughs> that you need to learn to be able to do searches over people with a different background. But yeah, I don't know. I just kind of fell into it. And I like details. So that's helpful <laughs> for this sort of work. <laughs> that's true. Do you remember your first search question that you got? Absolutely not. <laughs> Do you remember your first systematic <laughs> review? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, I could go back and t- I mean, I could go look and tell you which one was the first one I was an author on. But um, but yeah, I have no idea. Um, I've done many, many systematic review searches. Um, a lot of them make it through to publication. A lot of them don't. I feel like that was back around the early 2010s and things were just taking off with evidence synthesis. Yeah. At least that's how it felt to me. Yeah, I agree. So you mentioned authorship. Do we want to get into that potential quagmire of how do you how do you get authorship? What are your opinions on authorship and any advice you have for folks? <laughs> Um, so I'm in a somewhat unique position in that we are considered senior staff. Tenure is not a thing that we can ever get. Publications are, of course, encouraged, and the library encourages us to do research if we are interested in that, but it is not required. So me being an author on these papers is nice, but it is not going to affect my employment or my promotion or anything like that. So for that reason, I don't tend to request authorship a lot. Uh, A lot of the groups, I would say over the years, they've gotten much, much better at just automatically including my colleagues and I as authors on systematic reviews. If there's like a really, really massive project that's going to require a lot of work from us, I will bring it up that authorship is appropriate. But if it's a, if it's a quote unquote regular systematic review that's fairly straightforward I if they mention it then I'll say yeah that's appropriate um but if they don't I I don't particularly care which maybe isn't the right attitude but but yeah um I think it's sort of organically at least at my institution sort of becoming um just common that that's what you do is you provide authorship and a lot of times when I'm talking with the groups that are less experienced, I will I will compare our role in a systematic review to, say, a statistician's role in a meta-analysis or something like that. Like, we're not necessarily a subject expert, but we have a particular expertise in the methodology. Um, and I think that comparison can kind of help them connect the dots that, oh, yeah, this is, this is authorship-level work. 
How involved do you get with the systematic reviews? Are you just doing the search and citation reports? I mean, you know, like reporting out the results in in uh, EndNote library or whatever, or are you kind of from beginning to end? Like how involved do you get? <laughs> uh, one time I was involved from beginning to end, and I will never do that again because what happened was I essentially became the default project manager because I was capable and I I, I am aware of details. <laughs> um, <laughs> the medical student on the project was supposed to be that person, but did not did not fulfill that sort of role for whatever reason. But it was actually, it was somewhat detrimental um, because my expertise really is in the searching and, and to an extent in the organizing of the, the literature and, and how people should, um, should use the tools that are available to them to do that appropriately. Um, but this one, I was actually included as like a title abstract reviewer. Um, I don't think I was a full text reviewer, but my subject knowledge was not sufficient to be a title abstract reviewer. But yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing that I will ever do again. So what I will do is I'll meet with a group and if they haven't done it before or, um, or they're, or they're less experienced, I will sort of talk through the whole process to make sure that they understand and at least are aware of all of the steps of that process. And then I will point out that they should write a protocol that, and I will point out that where my expertise starts and ends. So, you know, helping them figure out what their question is, is a part of what I can do if they, if they haven't sort of nailed that down, putting together the search, translating it into databases, the relevant databases that they want to use, um, or that I suggest they use, and then running, running the search, putting it into either a citation manager or a tool like Covidence to do systematic review work on it. Um, And then I will advise on citation management and what and how they should think about that in the context of actually writing the paper. Uh, but um, I that is actually inputting citations into a paper is something that I will not do again. I did once and it <laughs> again was a bit of a hassle. Um, but I just don't have, we are not staffed to be able to do that for all the projects. They need to figure out how to do it themselves. Do you help them with the protocols? I have not. Um, I will pull up one um, and sort of walk them through it in our reference interview, um, and and I'll point out the parts that I think that they should especially pay attention to and and think about before they get to them, like inclusion and exclusion criteria, and what data they're trying to pull out, and how they um, how they might want to structure that information in their you know in their final product, whether that's a manuscript or something else. Um, so that they can be thinking about that and then hopefully reduce the amount of, oh, no, we forgot about this thing at the end of the project and then have to go back and, and look for it. Yeah, that sounds similar to what I do. And I learned from you never to be involved on the title and abstract part <laughs> <laughs> because I saw how much, how much work that was. For the most part, it just doesn't make sense because, like, I know enough to put together the search, but I do not know enough mm-hmm. um, you know, about the structure of the brain to be able to know if this tumor that we're looking at is in the right place or if it's Mm -hmm. the wrong place and we don't want it. Like, I don't know that. It gets very tedious. Mm -hmm. So when, when teams come to you and they have different levels of experience with systematic reviews, what might you do for a team or a person who comes to you but really doesn't seem to know what's involved? 
Yeah, so I usually ask for context about why they're doing it. Oftentimes, they will have a mentor or um, someone they're working with who's a faculty or um, at that level who is like, hey, go do this project. Um, So they have a vague idea of the topic. They've been told to do this thing, but they don't know what's involved in in doing the actual work of a systematic review. Um, so when that's the case, I will say, if if it's a single person, I will say, you cannot do a systematic review. Um, I am happy to talk to your PI or to your mentor about why that's an inappropriate project for you. Wow. Because that's a waste of everybody's time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the student is going to get a lot of busy work. I am going to get, you know, my time is going to be taken away from projects that will go somewhere and the mentor should be doing a better job of mentoring Mm -hmm. if you know and I offer to to meet with them with with that mentor um, to sort of discuss what might be a more appropriate project for that person or or how they might be more involved if the mentor is actually going to do the systematic review with their student or their you know first year resident or whoever it is um, then that's a different story um, because they're involved, and so they'll, you know, they'll have more input on what's happening, and they'll, they'll, they have usually have the initial topic, so they will better know what they're talking about versus this game of telephone that where I end up with a question that's not actually the question, and then I do a search, and then it's not going to get them what they're looking for, and then again, it's just frustrating for everybody. I did have a group came to me recently that is a group of undergraduate students, which I was a little bit worried about, but they were working with one of my faculty who is very experienced in systematic reviews, and so I set up a meeting with them, um, and the faculty member made it to the meeting, which was great, and I had started talking to them about a protocol, and she had already told them that that was their job for the next two months was to put together this protocol, So not only did she already have them, you know, sort of figuring out the structure of a systematic review, she also gave me enough time to start working on the search while they were working on the protocol, um, which was just really refreshing um, that they gave me time to put together a search with one concept that has a lot of a lot of terms. I remember you and I tag teamed on a search about drugs and it was like, I don't know, dozens upon dozens of drugs. Mm, I think, remember that? Was that the glucocorticoid one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've done one of those. It took probably months. It's, there's, I don't remember. And that's before you even get to brand names. Yeah, it was pages and pages and pages of synonyms. Yeah, it was bad. Oh. Yeah. And I don't remember if it actually even went anywhere. I have no idea. No, no. I could go look it up and see and check the, the name of the the person we were working with and see if he ever published on it. I don't think it did. So we've been talking about systematic reviews, but do you do other types of reviews like scoping, umbrella, any of those? Yeah, I think most often the other types of reviews that that I tend to do are scoping reviews. Um, And sometimes patrons will come to me and that's what they want initially, which is great um, because then it shows, you know, they're somewhat familiar with the different types of reviews and what what they're used for. Um, and sometimes I steer people towards that because there's just not enough out there um, for a systematic review to be the best uh, type of review for them. Mm-hmm, for sure. Do you have do you have literature you go to that you share with patrons when you need to, to show them the differences or the different types? I haven't had to. They don't tend to push back when I suggest a less rigorous type of review. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
That's good. Yeah. <laughs> if you frame it right, it is less work. It will take less time. <laughs> bigger bang for your buck. Right. And and it and to be honest, like, you know, if they call it a systematic review and it doesn't have the data uh, that it should have as a systematic review, it's possible that it will get rejected by editors. But if you call it a scoping review and you are pointing out, you know, here's where the current knowledge is and here's here's where we need to fill in our knowledge. Um, that's exactly, you know, what a scoping review is for, and editors are less likely to reject that because that's, it is what it, what it's labeled as, basically. Medical librarians everywhere want to know, Katie, how do you search? How do you start your search? Where do you search? Um, so I start my search in PubMed. For the longest time, Ovid wanted to charge us extra for access to Ovid Medline. And so we said, uh, no, we'll use PubMed. Um, so PubMed is what I am most familiar with. Um, so I start there. <laughs> uh, and then if it's a, um, you know, I, I start in mesh. I put my concepts together. I find my synonyms. I, you know, run it. I take a look at the results. I find more synonyms. I add them to my search. I run it again. That sort of situation. Um, if it is a involving drugs, I will um, often look at Embase as well before I send it to my patrons for their review, um, just because Embase does such a great job with their drug indexing. And I also, I access that through Elsevier. Um, I love Elsevier Embase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I'm not a huge fan of the Ovid Medline or Ovid interface in general. I'm also not a huge fan of the EBSCO interface. Um, I can deal with them when I have to, but um, they're not my favorites. Somebody who shall remain anonymous <laughs> said to me today that we both despise and absolutely require Elsevier. That's fair. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like Scopus and Embase, they're really good. Sometimes. We need Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes Scopus annoys me. Why? Oh, just that one search where, like, it, it, I was getting results that completely did not include a term from one concept, even though, you know, I combined them in various ways. Mm. I, I don't know. I still don't know why it's not working. I think when you do as much searching as all of us tend to do you get strong opinions and feelings about the interfaces mm -hmm. and the vendors and and the databases themselves but just if you spend so much time in them and learn them you see the good and the bad and oftentimes it's more bad than good yeah <laughs> that searching class that i took in library school we got to use dialogue and i loved it the command line yeah you had to know exactly how to use it but you could do you could make it do whatever you wanted and and the interfaces you know they're guardrails or bumper rails for you know so people don't have to know that much about a database to use it and and use it more or less effectively um but it takes away some of that some of that control that we have which becomes a real issue for systematic reviews. I mean, any type of reviews that you want to have well-documented searches, but with systematic reviews that is strict methodology and at least a goal of having reproducibility. Yeah. It's really difficult to even do that because the databases are making it difficult to be that precise. And I think that's why a lot of people still do the command-lined searches of, well, I, I, I shouldn't say command line. So the line by line searches, because it does kind of 
reflect the the command line searches. Personally, I don't see them as the same thing. Command line searches are one thing. I would I would just die if I had to do line by line searching for all my searches. I'm more of a paragraph searcher. Yeah, same. same. And and you can do paragraphs in command line searches or you used to be able to. It's been a while since I've been able to really do the old dialogue searches the way I remember them. But um, I think it becomes a real problem, like you said, with those guardrails or bumper rails, because you can't do the search that you intend to do in some of these interfaces. And even if you do them, you know, six months, a year from now, it may be so different that you can't reproduce those searches the way you did Mm -hmm. them even for the same project like if you have to do an updated thing it can get so messy yeah yeah I mean and you know I mean just the example of mesh updating which is good like mesh should update absolutely and and new terms are needed and terms need to be changed but yeah you know if you did one in September and you need to do you know one in March um you got to go back and check all your mesh and your old search doesn't work Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's not reproducible. Yeah. So in the case of something like that, when you do an updated search, how do you even like a one for one where you where you don't have to change the terms or whatever? How do you go about updating it and you know getting rid of all the duplications again and all of that? How do you do that efficiently? Because it is such a time consuming process. Yeah. Um. So. I I save all of my searches, obviously. I I usually, I send, um, I always send them a Word document so they have the search with the dates searched, uh, the number of results from each database, the duplicates that I found um, and removed uh, using EndNote, um, and then the duplicates that that Covidence found um, and removed I, I make sure that they have all those numbers. Usually when they're writing the manuscript, then they, I get sent an email saying, hey, we need this information, and then I resend that document. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're doing our yeah. Prisma flow diagram. Yeah. Can you fill in the blanks? Um, but with the updates, I will say that since we've had Covidence, it's been significantly easier Um for the, the duplicates that are, because, you know, if I ran a search in, you know, on August 15th, at the very least, um, if I'm doing an update in March, I'm going to run it from August 1st, just to make sure that I don't miss anything that got uploaded. And, you know, in some d- databases, as you know, you can only run by year. So I would have to run like that whole first eight months of that year again when I did the update. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll deduplicate that new set in EndNote against itself. Um, but then when you upload to Covidence, Covidence deduplicates against everything that's already in there. Um, and while that's not perfect, it's it's pretty good. So that has been great. Um, I really, it's one of my favorite tools to use. And, and I think it's really user-friendly for our patrons as well as for us. What are some of the other tools, if any? I mean, you mentioned the citation management software. Are there other systematic review or any review types that you have tools that you really like? That's the main one. Um, We have an institutional subscription to a citation manager. It is my least favorite citation manager, and it cannot handle 
large numbers of references, so it is not an effective citation manager for systematic reviews. <laughs> I know of what you speak. Yeah. We won't name any names. <laughs> I don't know why they don't get rid of it. Get rid of that tool. <laughs> I prefer EndNote. Um, however, I know that's cost prohibitive for a lot of people. You know, the faculty can afford it, no problem. But residents and students, that's that's a lot of money. So that's not always a good option either. A lot of our residents, just anecdotally, I've noticed, are using either Mendeley or Zotero. Zotero has some pretty good um, sharing options. So if you are working in a group and you do want everybody to be able to access the citations and theoretically add them to a document, it works pretty well. Mendeley doesn't have the group options as, as much, so that's less effective for that. Um, although, you know, you can just have one person doing citations. But the nice thing about Covidence is that you can put all of your references in there, and then you can go through the entire process within that tool, and then you can just end up with the, you know, the 50 or fewer that you're actually going to use in your paper, and then those you can put into any citation manager. Um, any citation manager can handle that number. So that's that's really nice. So that gets around that whole, you know, needing a really good citation manager for a large project, because all of it is in Covidence. And you can, you can pull it out of there at any point, and you can pull out any chunk that you want, but, but you don't have to. So I'd say that's the only tool that I, that I tend to use a lot. My groups are mostly clinical. I know some of my public health colleagues, I think they use um, Distiller a lot. And I think Epi Reviewer is also somewhat similar. Um, from my understanding, the learning curve on both of those is much, much steeper. Katie, what's your favorite, what's your favorite mesh term? What's my favorite mesh term? I'll go with emergency services, comma, hospital. Emergency medicine is one of my departments. I love them. Nobody else is going to get that department until I am uh, dead in my grave. But <laughs> their mesh term makes no sense. Um, it's emergency services, comma, hospital. So it's a really great demonstration of how the mesh term doesn't necessarily translate to how you would write something in a title and abstract and you need different keywords. But, um, but yeah, sure, we'll go with that one. I've noticed uh, on searches I've peer-reviewed or just searches I've seen that people struggle with the concept of emergency room searches because A&E, ER, ED, emergency services, and then it gets all, ti ti uh, it gets all tangled up with, um, what do they call that, pre-hospital medicine? Yeah, um, I have like a paragraph of all the different ways to say emergency room. Yeah, I think I do. Um, and you do have to be careful with the pre-hospital stuff um, if that's not relevant to the question, which it often isn't because the setting is very important um, as far as what resources mm -hmm. are available. Yeah, you do have to kind of, and sometimes you just have to look at it, you know, there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you have an emergency, emergency room or emergency medicine search. Do you have your own kind of personal search hedges that you've developed that you reuse? Yeah, um, we, for a short period of time, had an internal database of, uh, you know, really comprehensive concepts or hedges that we put together um, that we would share with each other. Um, and to be honest, it was mostly me and Carrie throwing ours up there. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
but yeah, the two that I use the most is uh, the emergency medicine one because, you know, again, the setting often matters as far as like either what they can do or or like time to treatment um, and things like that. So that that's why that setting is often important. The other one, um, one of my other departments that I love is pediatrics. Um, and obviously they are generally interested in things that happen in children. So I have a whole neonate to adolescent search um, that I use uh, frequently and pull the, the age ranges out of that are appropriate for the question. Yeah, I have I have a very similar one. I call it my kitchen sink peds search because it has every mesh term even sort of related, you know, the hospitalized child comma hospitalized mm-hmm. and, you know, adolescent health care or whatever the term is. And I have it this huge paragraph that I just edit out the the terms and the ages that I don't want. And mm-hmm. I have it set up as a as a PubMed filter because I am just that lazy. I used to have the, the WHS low and middle income countries filter also set up as a PubMed filter and I was very sad when they decided that, that was too big and I could no longer use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 kind of disheartening when you hit those those caps, you're mm-hmm. like, wait, why does my search no longer work? And you realize, oh, I have too many characters in my search and they ha- or have too many words. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you talk to you talk to the help desk or and it doesn't even have to be PubMed. It can be any interface. And they're like, nobody does searches that big. And you're like, mm, OK. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just me and my they're friends. Like, why, do you, why do you have so many terms? I'm like, well. The help desk is really helpful. I will admit that I do not often ask for help (laughs) from help desks because generally speaking, they don't (laughs) offer any. (laughs) I I have learned my lesson and I don't ask as much because I am pretty sure I'm on lists. (laughs) You know, you know, the, the, the problematic person that gets instantly elevated. I I suspect I'm that and probably part Mm -hmm. of some type of training for others. One of my colleagues has <laughs> has gotten really good at identifying the misapplied mesh terms um, since they went over to AI, um, and I think he is also probably on that list now as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, there was one. I think it was on Twitter a few weeks ago. Um, somebody found something that was very wrong for the mesh that was applied to a particular article, and they sent in a message about it saying, "Hey, you should look at this." And I think. The mesh got taken completely off that article. I don't know. I haven't gone back out to check to see if they put it back on. But oh, yeah, wow. it was when I went out to look at it, to look at the mesh terms, there were no mesh for that article. And they had screenshot um, the mesh on that article. So I don't know what's going on with it. But um, I will admit, I don't I don't often look to see if, if it's misapplied. But he's had a few, a few interesting, you know, where like a drug term is also like a soil contaminant term or something and so you get like really weird results that you shouldn't be getting i think that was that sort of situation speaking of ai do you think that there's ever the possibility that there won't be a need for librarians anymore i mean i think that the job will change as technology changes um in the same way that you know people don't use card catalogs anymore um Although the general structure of how that is is still in place. It's just in a computer now. You know um, why I'm asking. Why? 
Because <laughs> of our former head of DSS? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Our former technology person insisted we would no longer be needed and used to, like, stand behind our shoulders, like, sneak up on us and stand behind us and watch us search and be like, I'm going to do that. We can do that yeah. without you. Are you kidding me? No, and then he wanted to take, like, we would translate a search or a concept or something from PubMed to Embase, and he wanted to take all of that work that we had done and, like, feed it into, I don't know, computer learning or AI or whatever to to make it, like, an automatic thing. And it's like, but it doesn't, it's not one-to-one like that. Like, like the context of the question matters to which terms you translate and how. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just like didn't understand or care. Well, and I mean, there are tools that do that. There's the polyglot search, which is a really great tool, but even even that is not a hundred percent. You know, it's if well, and it, you still put together an initial search, right? Right. Yeah, like you still thought about how these terms relate to each other and mm-hmm. the question and and how they fit together. Um. Yeah, so there's still, so no, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that the sort of work that we do will ever go away. I think it will change because what doesn't change? I mean, any job you look at over the last 50 years has changed somehow. I was thinking about librarianship tropes and stereotypes, and I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that Katie is the person who taught me how to knit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still not very good, but she's a fantastic knitter. Um, incredibly. Well, I mean, to be fair, um, when I discovered that I could have all the wool socks I wanted, um, I was hooked because I hate being cold. <laughs> could you tell us about your, um, speaking of knitting and also our, our pet co-hosts, do you have a pet co-host with you today? I do. He is um, currently on his fifth nap of the day. Um, I have a dog. <laughs> um, he's a part beagle um, named Ozzy. Not related to Ozzy and Harriet or Ozzy Osbourne. Um, my mom got his sister, named her Zoe, and I decided to go back a week later and get her brother, and I just changed around the letters in the name. Um, he is he's 13. Um, he's in great shape, according to the vet. He's one of the only skinny beagles he's ever seen. <laughs> um, That's impressive. I, I yeah, I'm really proud of it. <laughs> um, I would also be on Team Cat, but I am allergic, so I am on Team Cat from a distance. Yeah, right. Um, Katie, you live in Maryland now. You haven't always lived in Maryland. How do you feel about crabs? Um, since you prefaced it with the Maryland question, I'm assuming you're talking about eating them. Well, just in general. <laughs> any crab. <laughs> any crab will do. Um, there, there's different ways that question could have gone. <laughs> Horseshoe crabs are amazing. Um, we get a lot of very important uh, medical... They're involved in a couple of medical tests, their blood or something. I will admit to knowing no more than that. Horseshoe crabs. Yeah, horseshoe crabs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're awesome. Um, I love a good crab leg with butter. Um, I I hesitate to say this, but, but, um, but I will put it out there. Not a huge fan of crab cakes or Old Bay, which is how you know that I am a Maryland transplant. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's heartbreaking. 
I mean, nobody's perfect. <laughs> uh, Tracy and I found an episode, a podcast episode called uh, Crabs All the Way Down from Radiolab. And it was actually pretty fascinating. Apparently, evolution keeps evolving crabs, and there are five different branches of crabs that have evolved over time. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it was really fascinating. Our, our final form will be crabs. crabs. <laughs> that's what it said. That's what it said. We're going to evolve into crabs. Katie, it's been really good to talk to you, um, and thank you for joining us today for episode six of Medlib Miscellany. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. This podcast was produced by myself and Tracy Shields, audio edited by myself, with show notes by Tracy Shields, and transcriptions by Jen Mani. Find us on Twitter at medlibs underscore miss, M-I-S-C, or email us at medlibsmiscellany at gmail.com. You can find Tracy on Twitter at TC Shields. You can find me, Terry, on Twitter at CarryPrice78. Our theme music is Nerdy and Quirky by Music Town on Pixabay. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.